I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're a believer here this morning, you have been given a new life and a new spirit, and you are a new creation with new goals and new purposes and new values. And God expects you to express that. You and I are to walk in newness of life. God expects us to be different. Now, that's sometimes very hard to do. You say, well, how can I really be different? I mean, I still live in the same old neighborhood. I still have the same old job. I still have the same old wife. Same old kids. Same old dog. I live in the same old world. I've still got this same old body. How can I really be different? How can I really change? And Peter addresses that question in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. He talks about the flesh three times. He talks in verse 1 about how to deal with sin. He talks in verse 2 about how to deal with the lusts of of men. He talks in verse 3 about how to deal with the desires of the Gentiles. He talks in verse 4 about how to relate to your old friends. He tells me in this passage how I can live a totally new and different life while still in this sinful flesh and still in this sinful world. And he does it in two points. He tells us how to deal with our flesh in verses 1 and 2. Then he tells us how to deal with the world in verses 3 through 6. And we'll see each from three different angles, past, present, and future. First of all, how to deal with my flesh in verses 1 and 2. How do I deal with being a new creature in the same old body? How do I deal with the lusts and the sin that come from my flesh? Well, look at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter says, Christ has suffered in the flesh, so you ought to do the same thing because if you suffer in the flesh, you won't sin. Now what does that mean? Well, some say that this means that if you'll really take a stand for Christ and be willing to suffer for Him, that will be a deterrent to sin. And we can see how that principle works. I mean, it seems wherever the church is persecuted, the church is more pure. In fact, in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, there's only one church to which Christ has nothing negative to say, and that's the church at Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. Suffering for Christ does bring purity, but I don't think that's Peter's emphasis in this verse because suffering doesn't necessarily stop you from sinning. Sometimes people suffer and they get more bitter. They get more angry. They get more resentful. Pharaoh was in Egypt. He got all the plagues, all the suffering that came with those plagues. And what did he do? He sinned more. So I don't think that's what Peter is saying in this verse. You say, well, what is he saying? Well, look at the verse again. It says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. Now, what kind of suffering is he talking about? Well, he says, therefore, which sends us back into the previous paragraph. Look back in chapter 3 at verse 18. 
It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. How did Christ suffer in the flesh? He was put to death. So He's not simply talking here about persecution. He's talking here about death. And then He says in verse 1, Arm yourselves with the same purpose. That phrase, arm yourself, is a military phrase. It referred to a soldier putting on his armor. And Peter is saying, with the same determination and care with which a soldier puts on his armor, Christians are to adopt this purpose, or the word literally means this principle. And what is the principle? Well, if you go back to the previous paragraph, it tells us in verse 18 that Jesus died. But when we get down to verse 22, it says He's at the right hand of God in heaven and all the angels and authorities and powers are subjected to Him. What is the principle that we see in the Lord Jesus? The principle is that Christ gained His greatest victory at the time of His greatest suffering. And we are to take that same principle and put it on ourselves like armor because it is a weapon in our battle. And what is our battle against? Our battle is against sin. And so how does putting on this principle like armor affect the battle? Well, look at the end of verse 1. He says, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. How do we win the victory over sin? By suffering and dying. That's real simple. In case you haven't noticed, dead people don't sin. They don't have to have a code of conduct at the morgue. Because one thing dead people don't have to deal anymore with is lusts. They are gone. Sin is gone. So the principle is simple. Dead people don't sin. You say, well then is Peter saying we should go out and become martyrs and get burned at the stake for Jesus Christ so we can stop sinning? No. Because if you look at verse 2, he goes on to say, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh. So he's talking about the fact that we need to suffer and die. We need to put this principle on so that we will live the rest of our time the way God wants us to. So what's he talking about? How are we to suffer and die as Christians? Well, I want us to look at that in terms of the past, present, and future. First of all, the past, which speaks about how God has dealt with us positionally. Did you know that when you came to Jesus Christ, you didn't just come into a new life, you came into a new death? That's why when Jesus gave his invitation, it sounded like this Mark 8 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. What's a cross? Cross is a means of death. You see, life with Jesus begins with a cross. God's life is resurrection life, and it only comes after there's a death. You say, well, how did that death take place? Well, listen to Paul's words in Galatians 2.20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. 
Did you know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, I died with him? In the mind of God, positionally, it's as if God sees me as having been nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed there. We sing the song, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, I was. Because I was crucified with Jesus Christ. I have come into faith in Christ, and because of that, positionally in the past, I have died with him. And I think Peter has this in mind because in chapter 3 and verse 21, he mentions the analogy of baptism. And baptism is that identification with Jesus Christ in what? In his death, burial, and resurrection. Romans chapter 6 and verse 3 says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? In the past, we have died positionally in Christ. But then let's look at the present. And the present, the past is positionally, the present is personally. How do I apply this principle personally? Well, Paul says, or Peter says here in verse 1, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. You see, because I have died in the past, that means I am dead in the present. And I think what Peter is telling us here is that since you have died positionally in Christ, you need to now make that personal in your life. Let me show you a verse. Look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3. Colossians 3, 3. Paul says, for you have died. Can't make it any clearer than that. You have died past tense. And then if you slide down to verse 5, he says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. You have died positionally with Jesus Christ, so personally, in the present, you need to make that a reality by faith in your life, by making the members of your body dead to sin. Look at Romans chapter 6 with me. This is the classic passage on this subject. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Paul says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him. That's positional, past tense. You need to know this. You were crucified with Christ. Then he brings us into the present in verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You have died with Christ. You need to know that. But in the present, you need to consider it by faith to be true in your life. And what is the results of having died to sin? Look at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lust. I don't have to let sin reign. I don't have to obey its lust. Sin has been dethroned in my life. Look at verse 13. He says, no longer are you to give the members of your body to sin for unrighteousness. You are now to give the members of your body to God for righteousness. And then verse 14 says, for sin shall not be master over you. Sin is no longer my master. Its dominion has been broken. I have victory through death. And then come back to 1 Peter chapter 4, where we see the future. The past is positional. 
The present is personal. The future is practical. Look at verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh. I have died past tense. I am dead present tense. But I still have to live the rest of the time in this flesh carton that I live in. How am I going to spend the rest of my time? He says in verse 2, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Now what are the lusts of men? You would think we could make a long list of the lusts of men, but the Bible really makes a very short list of the lusts of men. John tells us about them in 1 John 2.16. He says, there is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh is the desire for pleasure. The lust of the eyes is the desire for possessions. And the pride of life is the desire for prestige. And that's really it. Possessions, pleasure, and prestige. Those are the things that men are seeking after. I want to win the lottery. Possessions. I want to become famous. Prestige. And I want my very own island in the South Pacific with a big castle and a harem of women who feed me grapes and fan me all day. Pleasure. Peter says, you are no longer to desire those things because dead people don't desire those things. We're not to live for the lusts of men. We are to live for the will of God. Now let me ask you something. What is God's desire for you? Again, we could make a long list, but I think if you want to simplify that, it comes down to one thing. God's desire for you is that you be like Jesus. That's it. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, it says God causes all things to work together for good. God takes all the things in our lives and He makes them work together for good. You know what the good is? It tells us in the very next verse, it says that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. God works everything together for good and the ultimate good for you and for me, God's will for us, is that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And what is Jesus Christ like? We just saw it in the last paragraph. He suffered loss to gain victory. He came into life through death. And that is God's will for you and for me as well. God's will is that we might die so that we are free from our old life of slavery to sin, that we might come into that new life that God has given to us. Just like the analogy he used at the end of chapter 3. Noah went into the ark. The ark received the judgment of God and he came out into a whole new life. We go into Christ. Christ receives the judgment of God and we come out into a whole new life. That is God's will for us. But listen to me. You will never experience that new life until you first die to the old life. You will never do God's will until you first die to your own will. We have to stop saying, my will be done, and start saying, Lord, your will be done. You know how we accomplish the will of God? We always make that sort of difficult. We always sit around saying, I just don't know what God's will is for me. God's will for you is real simple. 
He wants you to be like Jesus Christ. And you know how you accomplish it? It's real simple, too. It's in two verses a lot of you have memorized. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And there it says in verse 1 that you are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What's that mean? You are to present yourself. What's a sacrifice? Something that has died. You are to present yourself. You're still alive, but you're to present yourself as a living sacrifice to God, dead to yourself, dead to sin, dead to this world. You are to present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. And then verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. How do you accomplish the will of God? You present yourself as a sacrifice to God, dead in Christ. And what happens as a result? You're no longer conformed to the character of the world. You are transformed. Interesting word. It's the Greek word metamorphosis. It's the way a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. You leave the old dead cocoon behind and you soar into life. And that's the way you prove God's will in your life. It comes by dying in order to live. You see, there's a paradox throughout Scripture. And that paradox is the more we die to self, the more we live to God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.10, we are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. We're always carrying around the dying of Jesus. Why? So his life will be manifest in us. In Philippians 3.10, he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Most of us stop right there. You know what the rest of the verse says? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. How do I experience the power of God's resurrection in my life? I get conformed to his death. I die to self. I die to sin. I die to this world. It's a paradox. That's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I am crucified. I'm dead, but look, I'm alive. That's the paradox of Scripture. I come to life through death. So how do I deal with my flesh? Past tense, I've died with Christ. Present tense, by faith, I realize that I'm dead to self. And future tense, I now live to accomplish the will of God. Second point, how to deal with the world in verses 3 to 6. You say, well, all right, I'm living this new life. I'm dead to self and alive to God, but what about all the people around me? What about my old friends? I mean, Noah didn't have this problem. Noah went into the ark, came out, and everybody was drowned. You come to Christ, He transforms your life, you still got the same old friends around, you still got the same old problems. How do I deal with the world around me? Well, let's look at it past, present, future. First of all, past, verse 3. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Peter says, you have had enough time before you were saved to fool around with the desires of the Gentile. You've had enough time 
to do all those pagan, godless, selfish things. That relationship with the world is a past thing. That's a closed book. The old things are passed away. In fact, there are only two periods in a believer's life. There is the phrase in verse 3 that says, the time already passed. And then there's that phrase in verse 2 that says, the rest of the time. There are only two periods in a believer's life. That's before Christ and after Christ. And Peter says, you've put in your time doing the world's thing. That's past tense. That's B.C., before Christ. And then Peter says, in case you don't remember what I'm talking about when I say the desire of the Gentiles, here's what that life consists of. And he lists six things in verse 3. He says, having pursued, first of all, a course of sensuality. That word literally means excess. That's when a person just lets themselves go. Unbridled, unrestrained, unchecked. That's the spirit that dares to sin any sin. And then secondly, he says lust. That's evil passions, selfish desires, corrupt cravings. That's the motto, if it feels good, do it. And then third, drunkenness. Literally, the overflowing of wine. Drinking to the point of intoxication. Fourthly, carousals. That word means to parade about. It, it describes a person who's just wandering around in search of some stimulation. Today we would translate it cruising Broadway. Fifth is drinking parties, beer bus. And sixth is abominable idolatries, or literally lawless idolatries, involved in things that are against the law, like drugs or illicit activity. Now what's interesting, when you look at this list, all of these things are the things that people use to try to fill up the emptiness inside. All of these things are either a means of escape or they're painkillers. You know, there's three problems with the world's painkillers. Number one, they don't last. The drugs that helped you escape your problems yesterday just cause you to have more problems today. The alcohol that filled you yesterday leaves you more empty today. The, the pornography that satisfied you yesterday leaves you more hungry today. They don't last. And secondly, they can be addictive. They promise to be your servant, but they turn out to be your master. They don't last. They can be addictive. And third, they never solve the problem. How do you spell relief? Some people spell relief D-R-U-G-S. Some people spell relief B-O-O-Z-E. Some people spell relief S-E-X. Some people spell relief T-V. How do you spell relief? You spell relief J-E-S-U-S. 
And Peter says, sensuality and selfish desires and drunkenness and carousing and partying and lawlessness is all B.C. You have put in your time walking in the desires of the world. That is your past. And then he moves to the present in verse 4. He says, and in all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation. What do your old friends think of your new lifestyle? Peter says they're surprised. They're shocked because you've given up the good life. Or as Peter says, they're surprised because you're no longer running with them into this excess of dissipation. That's kind of vague. Dissipation is an interesting word. It's the Greek word asotos. A means negative, sotos means saved. So this word literally means that which is not saved or that which is wasted. It's used of the prodigal son in Luke 15 who wasted his time and his money and his life. They don't understand why you're no longer running with them and diving headlong into those desires that will waste your life. They don't understand why you're not still grabbing for the gusto. They don't understand why you don't eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And so what do they do? He says at the end of verse 4, they malign you. They speak evil of you. Those same people who used to applaud you are now heckling you. And why do they do that? Well, I think it should be pretty obvious. And if your old friends applauded your decision of leaving their lifestyle behind, that would be an, an admission that they're wrong. And so it's easier to malign you. So don't be surprised that they're surprised. And then he moves, moves to the future. In verse 5, when you're looking back at the old life and it's starting to seem a little attractive to you, when you're feeling the heat in the present of people maligning you, Peter says, just look to the future, verse 5, but they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They are living for the present. They are maligning you in the present. But Peter says they've got an appointment in the future. They are going to stand one day face to face with Jesus Christ and they are going to give an account. And he is the judge and Peter says he's ready. He's already got all the evidence. He's already got the case put together. And they've got an appointment one day to stand before him as judge. And so if you are being maligned today, it's not your business to get even. They will one day give an account to him. You say, well, what's going to happen to us? Look at verse 6. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Now, he's not talking there about people who are spiritually dead because we were all spiritually dead when the gospel was preached to us. What he's talking about here is people who have heard the gospel and believed and have now died. What has happened to them? He goes on to say that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Somebody who's a believer dies. 
It looks like they've lost. And Peter says, yes, they have received the judgment in the flesh that all men receive. The wages of sin is death. We all die physically. But though it looks like they have lost, and when you die in the future, it will look to people like you have lost. The truth is, what does he say at the end of verse 6? Though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. You see, if I am identified with Jesus Christ, I have already died. The penalty of sin has been paid for. And when I die, I will just receive the physical ramifications of sin, which is physical death. But actually, what will happen to me is the same thing that happened to Jesus Christ back in 3.18, where it says He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What a victory. We have victory through death in our lives today, and when we die in the future, it will also be a victory through death because it will take us into the presence of the Lord, and we will have life forevermore. And so he says the world will stand before Christ and give an account. We will live eternally. What a future. So how do I really be different when I live in this sinful body and in this sinful world? Peter says, first of all, deal with your flesh. You need to realize that in the past you have died with Christ. You need to realize in the present that you are dead to sin, and you need to plan for the future to live for the will of God. And then he says, you need to deal with the world. Past, you've put in your time doing those things. Present, as you live out the will of God, you're going to probably be maligned. And in the future, realize those who are maligning you have judgment in store you have eternal life because your judgment has been paid for at the cross. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage of practical benefit to us. Help us, Lord, to realize that to fulfill what you want to do in our lives, to allow your life to be manifest through us, we need to experience death Death to sin, death to self. Father, help us to get ourselves off the throne of our lives, to stop saying, my will be done, and to bow humbly before you and say, Lord, your will be done. And Lord, as we die to self, we pray that your life might be manifest in a way that others can see and others are drawn to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.